0: I think organizing and making sure that everyone is aware of what these laws are doing and the fact that the majority of Americans do not support this, do not want to live this way, and spreading the word about that is ultimately the way we're going to get out of this.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, Bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and the Sled. Well, it's been nearly 50 years since the United States Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade established the Constitution protects a woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion. But in the last two weeks, the issue has once again become the center of nationwide controversy as a leaked draft opinion in the matter of Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization indicates that the Supreme Court is prepared to overturn Roe. While questions remain about how closely the final ruling will track this draft opinion, the public has wasted no time in expressing its anger with those advocating for abortion, staging protests and demonstrations, and those advocating against taking the issue with the leak itself. So what does all this mean? Today on this episode of Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss this recent leak of the draft of the Supreme Court opinion that might overturn abortion rights, the constitutional right to abortion, the role of stereo decisis and the impact this will have if Roe versus Wade is overruled. And to do that, our guest today is Carrie Franklin, professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where she writes and teaches in the areas of constitutional law, anti-discrimination law and legal history. She's currently the faculty director of the Williams Institute, a research institute at UCLA focused on sexual orientation and gender identity law and public policy. And the faculty director of the Center on Reproductive Health, Law, and Policy, an innovative new center engaging with community organizations, scholars, lawmakers, practitioners, and advocates on reproductive health, law, and policy. Welcome to the show, Carrie.
0: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
1: And just to be clear, there's no relationship between me, Craig Williams, and the Williams Institute (laughs) that I know of. Well, wow, what a week we've had. We've got multiple leaks out of the Supreme Court, a big draft opinion that nobody seems happy with, and some people do. I should say nobody, but where are we? What's, uh, we have a draft opinion. Uh, we have a couple leaks saying that Roberts may convince somebody else to go on his side. What's happening?
0: Oh, I wish I had the answer to that. We are in a strange situation right now. Um, Everybody's kind of waiting and wondering what exactly will happen. But it looks like, I mean, my prediction would be that the draft opinion that got leaked, at least as far as we can tell right now, seems to be a majority opinion. The question of whether it will hold as such is, is open, I guess. But We certainly know as of I guess we'll say as of February, we know that Justice Alito was imagining his opinion as a majority opinion. Five justices for overturning Rowan Casey.
1: Right. And just for those who haven't clerked on a uh, appellate court or a Supreme Court, uh, what is a draft opinion? What kind of meaning does it have in the court?
0: So the justices hear oral argument in a case where the litigants on both sides get to present their arguments, and then the justices go back and have a conference, and they talk about their thoughts and which way they're leaning, what questions they have. And when the justices take that initial vote about where they're all standing, the opinion, the majority opinion gets assigned to a particular justice. And it appears what we can say is what happened is that there was a majority in December, after the oral argument in this case for overturning Roe, kind of the maximalist outcome in this case would be just striking down Roe's holding that there is a fundamental right to abortion. And at that point, there were at least five justices for that proposition. The opinion was assigned to Justice Alito. He went back to his chambers and he worked with his clerks and he drafted this opinion. And as of February, when this leaked opinion comes from He was holding a majority and he was circulating that opinion to his colleagues to say, what do you think about this? Are you still likely to sign on to it? Um, Do you have any corrections? And who's going to write a dissent? And that's where they were as of February.
1: So is there any indication so far who has leaked this opinion? Did it come directly from Alito or one of his clerks?
0: Nobody knows. Uh, Well, (laughs) somebody knows, but no one out here knows. And there's been speculation I can tell you what we do know. There have been multiple leaks out of the Supreme Court. It's not just the leaked opinion. There, have, there are people close to the court talking to Politico, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, and The Washington Post. And in numerous of those stories, the journalists have identified the leakers as conservatives. Politico did not identify the leaker of the draft opinion in any way. So we do know there are some leaks coming from the conservative side. Whether the draft opinion also came from the conservative side is not known. I'll just say the speculation is that it also came from the conservative side, because one thing that leaking that opinion does is raise the cost of defecting from that opinion at this point. So there's there's some suggestion that this puts pressure on Chief Justice Roberts not to peel off another justice, to hold everybody in place as of February. Because if if you change your position now, it looks like you might be caving to political pressure as a result of the opinion. So it makes sense to me that the leak may have been someone who wanted to lock those five in place as of February.
1: Well, that there are some that have opined that that leak has also done some other things. It's caused uh, the abortion activists to rally together, and may in fact have an, a significant impact on the midterms.
0: It may, and may, it may, and as I said, nobody knows who actually leaked it. Um, you one could imagine lots of per, this person may have had idiosyncratic reasons, but. I could see someone on the left or someone on the right wanting to leak to affect politics, someone on the left wanting to alert people and wanting to galvanize people for the midterms, someone on the right wanting to reduce the impact or the shock when Roe finally is overruled at the end of June or the beginning of July, which looks like it's going to happen, you know, it's maybe a little bit anticlimactic at that point because we have this long rollout. So I think there are all sorts of reasons that could have driven someone, but uh, so someone had some some political motivations, some ideological motivations to want to get this out there.
1: Right. And also prompted a Senate, a Senate vote. It did. And that pretty much put everybody on record about who's voting for what.
0: As of now, anyway, yeah, they, they tried to uh, enshrine the Women's Health Protection Act into federal law, which would have been an attempt to codify Roe. That didn't pass. Uh, and that's where we are right now.
1: Well, as we talk about this, let's dive into the opinion a little bit there have been a lot of arguments out there that this is quite a slippery slope; that it could go back and as far as Brown and start overruling Brown and Loving and Griswold and uh, Casey and and the whole raft of uh, rights that have come the unenumerated rights in the in the uh, in the Constitution. What's your thought about that?
0: Well, the draft opinion specifically points to other decisions in the line of cases that Roe was in. So the the decision itself says there are rights that we've protected as fundamental unenumerated rights under substantive due process, under the due process clause in the 14th Amendment that weren't listed in the 14th Amendment. And those rights include loving, the right to marry someone of a different race, Turner, the right to for prisoners to marry. Griswold, the right to use birth control. Uh, Moore, the right to live with your relatives. And then, of course, Rowan Casey, uh, the right to have an abortion. And then Lawrence and Obergefell, the right to have same-sex sex and the right to marry someone of the same sex. The court explicitly lists all of those cases and says they're all in this line. And it announces a test for which of these opinions as well, grounded, that asks, is the right deeply rooted in history and tradition? And it looks to see, spanning back 100 years, have Americans always viewed this right in particular, defined at a high level of specificity, as the kind of right that was protected? Now, that's why everyone's saying, The opinion renders all those other decisions vulnerable. Because if you ask, is a right to same-sex marriage deeply rooted in American history and tradition, the answer is no. Many of these rights are not long, have not been protected for a 100 years by statute, which seems to be the requirement that this draft opinion is laying out. And it said abortion doesn't count. And it's suggesting that same-sex marriage and same-sex sex sex and birth control and many of these other things that you can't find that specific historical protection for are vulnerable. So, yes, I think people are right to say this opinion seems to have a pretty long reach.
1: It's got a long tail. Well, let's trot that tail as far back on this slippery slope as we can go. Back when the founders drafted the Constitution, there were no women in the room. There were no women voters. There were no delegates. There were no women in any of the state legislators. Women weren't even considered persons at that point under the Constitution. So we, the people, (laughs) what does that mean now under, under this draft opinion?
0: One of the reasons this way of understanding substantive due process hasn't prevailed for a couple of generations now in areas involving family and sexuality and bodily autonomy is that you're absolutely right. If we look at the 14th Amendment, which was enacted in 1868 and bars the states from violating due process or equal protection, everything you say is true. Women didn't get the vote there were several generations till women even got the vote women were not uh, drafting this they were not ratifying this they were not part of the discussion so if the test is the right very specifically defined has to be one that we understood as protected in the 19th century using that very rubric it's not going to look good for a lot of folks who've historically been subordinated because the, the very point is their rights weren't protected. They didn't have a voice. They were excluded from voting and much else besides. And so in choosing this methodology, you've already decided to exclude the voices and the rights of all these people.
1: Right. And then we have a compromise amendment in the Constitution for black people that don't even give them a full vote.
0: Right. It has been in our constitutional tradition, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg noted in one notable opinion of hers, it's been an unfolding of the understanding of what equality and liberty mean over time. And I think that the people who drafted these constitutional provisions drafted them at a high enough level of generality because they understood that what People in the 18th and 19th century understood liberty and equality to mean would not be what Americans forever and all time understood liberty and equality to mean. They wanted this constitution to endure. So instead of listing the particular rights that were protected, they said, your equality and your liberty are protected. And they understood that over time, Americans would think about that term and argue about that term and understand that term in new ways. And that's what the court has been saying for a couple generations now in these substantive due process cases. You know, the right to interracial marriage wasn't understood to be a fundamental right in 1868, but By the late 1960s, we came to think of it that way. The same with abortion and the same with LGBT rights.
1: Right. All that has changed. Well, let's talk about the last three justices who have been confirmed, Gorsuch, Barrett and Kavanaugh, who have each said that in their testimony before Congress, have each said Roe was settled law. This opinion doesn't look that way. How does that shake out? I mean, are are they held to what they said under penalty of perjury in front of Congress and what are the are there any consequences for them switching from one side to the other?
0: Well, I don't think there are legal consequences to them. I don't think they're held to what they say in the confirmation process. I think it partly shows that the confirmation process is broken. And is something of a sham. With justices saying, I mean, in Justice Clarence Thomas's hearings, he said he had never really thought about or talked about Roe, which is an obviously ridiculous thing to say. But but justices on all sides of the political spectrum have taken the tack recently of just not answering questions or just saying something is currently law. And I think the ramifications may be more political. I think that if you've gone on record telling the American people that you think one way, and then you turn around the next year and vote another way, people may feel that you haven't been open and honest. And that may lead to dissatisfaction with the court. And in fact, we're seeing a drop in people's trust in the Supreme Court recently, driven by the view that it's become politicized. And that when Justice Trump said, he would appoint justices who would automatically overturn Roe, and that appears to be what happened. People lose faith that this court is really anything other than another legislative body implementing its own policy views
1: and there have been protests as a result of this uh, protests out in front of the justices' houses, some on the abortion side have said, you know it's legitimate to to protest in front of their homes because they're Anti-abortion activists are protesting in front of the clinics where they, where they have to pass through that gauntlet. What's your thought about that?
0: Well, you know, and, and Senator Schumer was out there saying, you know, people protest in front of my house all the time and, and no one makes anything of it. You know, I, I guess my primary reaction would be I'm not sure that protesting outside of the justices house is the most effective way to get one's message across or to get something accomplished. So I guess I would say that there are better ways to organize and galvanize a movement, and that will have to happen if supporters of reproductive rights want to see uh, reproductive rights protected. And I suspect that's where we'll shift after this immediate aftermath of the of the opinion. I don't think protesting in front of these justices' house is going to last too much longer, but I do think there will be big protests, marches on Washington, marches in major cities when the opinion comes down. And I think there'll be a lot of legislative action in blue states to try to protect folks in those states. There'll certainly be activity and everybody will be galvanized and motivated by this decision. And what way it will all shake out, I'm not sure.
1: Right. Well, Carrie, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. launch now at pli.edu/interactive or download pli's mobile app.
0: Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software?
1: Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's JD McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went. To a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for lunch hour legal marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Carrie Franklin. She's professor of law at UCLA School of Law and the director of a couple centers. And we've been discussing the recent leak of draft Supreme Court opinion on abortion rights and its significance. We began right before the break to talk about states and and, uh, the federal government. Let's talk about states' rights. You know, obviously, we've got numerous red states that are going to flop and and change the abortion rights. And there's going to be blue states that are going to expand them. How does that relate to the Constitution and what rights the states have to do these things?
0: One of the great ironies of what's going to happen this summer is that the draft opinion, and I suspect we'll see this in the final opinion as well talks about Roe and Casey not settling anything and one of the reasons why we don't have to give sorry decisis weight to those opinions, in other words, follow them as precedent is because they haven't really produced settled law they've produced conflict. The irony is Dobbs, the opinion that will come down this summer is going to produce unfathomable conflict. It's going to bring us into areas of law that are deeply unsettled and underexplored. And there are many, many more questions than answers. So I'll I'll say when the decision comes down, probably about half of the states will immediately or in short order bar abortion. Other states will work to shore up and protect abortion rights. But it won't end there with each state just doing its own thing, because a number of states have already made a move to want to reach beyond their borders and criminalize abortions that happen in states where abortions are legal, but are performed on residents of those red states. So somebody goes to California and then returns to Missouri, and now Missouri tries to arrest them. Or Missouri even tries to extend its law extraterritorially to to punish California providers. And we're going to get into major conflicts of law where states are, maybe California is working on bills saying, we're not going to cooperate with Mississippi when it tries to reach into California to punish behavior here, and Mississippi's gonna try to reach in, and it's going to be endless conflict between the states.
1: Whatever happened to full faith and credit?
0: Uh, well, perhaps that will be interpreted. Perhaps it will be interpreted that states do need to give full faith and credit to the judgments of other states. But states like California and Connecticut are already, Connecticut has already passed, and California is currently considering laws that say, our court system will not enforce your judgments. Our justice system will not engage in extradition of people to your states. We will not participate in the regime you're trying to engage in. In fact, Connecticut just passed a law that said if you have a judgment against you in another state, you can counter sue in Connecticut and recoup the costs that were imposed on you in other states. It's a little bit like World War III among the states, I think, at this point. You know, it may all get settled, but there's going to be a lot of battles before there.
1: Do we, as a judicial system in our country, have the capacity to be able to handle this on the heels of the pandemic?
0: Oh well, <laughs> uh, it depends on whether you think we're. Hand- I mean, uh, it's we're going not handling to st- it now. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I, I I think I think this is straining us to the limits, but you know. We we current to the extent we have to the extent you believe we currently have a functioning judicial system, I believe will will limp along as we're as we're going. But it's a little bit of chutzpah of this opinion to say, you know, Roe and Casey uh, have have caused foment and unrest and not have not settled the law, given that Dobbs is going to create a huge number of questions that are going to take a lot of litigation and, and a lot of court battles to resolve.
1: Well, some of those questions, I would guess, are contraception, birth control, Plan B, condoms, the whole bit. What, How far is this going to go?
0: Well, that's the question on the table because we're already seeing Republican lawmakers and political candidates in some of the states that have trigger bans. Right, They're, they're obviously going to ban abortion after Dobbs comes down. But now some of them are talking about restricting access to birth control. Um, And they're doing that in a number of different ways. Some states are suggesting maybe we'll put in parental consent requirements. Some states are saying maybe we'll redefine certain kinds of contraception, such as IUDs, such as Plan B, as abortifacients. And that way they will also be banned. And so I do think it's not a question of whether they will come after birth control, but in what ways and, and whether the courts will draw the line anywhere. But absolutely, I expect that to happen. It's already happening.
1: I've seen a lot of women complain about uh, what's uh, Cialis and the, the uh, other the blue pill and whatever they're called. Uh, any chance that those are going to get outlawed for men? Is there any going to be regulation on, on men as a consequence of this?
0: Well... I think restricting access to birth control has a major impact on everybody. I think some of these laws raise questions about the legality of IVF, which raises questions about whether lots of men are going to be able to have biological children uh, or ch- children through IVF, whether they're going to be able to practice birth control with their partners. I think it opens up a whole range of restrictions that will deprive not only women, but men as well of reproductive autonomy.
1: Well, obviously, this opinion is absolutely uh, going to change the landscape for women. What advice would you give a woman living in a red state that's facing abortion restrictions that wants to have an abortion, uh, especially on the heels of some of this criminalizations going on?
0: Well I think I think first of all an important thing to say is the opinion hasn't come down these trigger bans haven't gone into effect abortion is still legal in some places you should check your jurisdiction but major restrictions have been put in place in states like Texas and you know a generation of laws that have restricted abortion have made it hard to access I think One thing to do is look at states like California who are aiming to become sanctuary states and support women who can get to California. I think if you can get to California, even with support that is available, that's one option, but not everybody can do that. I think pills through the mail is going to be a major area of activism and litigation, and we'll have to see how that all shakes out. I think organizing and making sure that everyone is aware of what these laws are doing and the fact that the majority of Americans do not support this, do not want to live this way. And spreading the word about that is ultimately the way we're going to get out of this.
1: You know, this goes back to having a discussion about gerrymandering and the effect of uh, Mm -hmm. efforts for the Republicans to control the legislatures and, and over the Trump years, kind of influence the county and city and state ranks with Republicans. Is it too late for Democrats to, you know, raise the flag and get support on this because of all the things that have gone on over the last five to six years?
0: No doubt it's a challenge. And I think a lot of people are saying reproductive rights are voting rights. And there's a lot of truth in that. And a lot of these gerrymandering efforts, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, the restrictions at the polls do present challenges. But I don't think that the response is to give up. I think the response is to organize. I think we have been in situations where the vote was horribly restricted and people were not able to have their voice heard. And we're just going to need another movement that says we are the majority, we do not want this, and works to protect both voting rights that enable the majority to have its voice heard and that uh, works to protect reproductive rights that the majority of Americans support.
1: I don't mean to sound off topic, but we have seen some of this in the past. We've seen false electors. We've seen argument that the state legislatures have the right to declare their own slate of electors to go to the electoral college and ignore the popular vote, despite what it may be. And in states where there are republican controlled legislatures, do you see that as an issue coming up in the next presidential election
0: yes <laughs> i I think it's a real problem. I think we have some serious democratic deficits. Uh, I think there have been a lot of efforts to stop the majority from voice from having its voice heard and put into law from the presidential election on down to not being allowed to give people water when they're standing in line at the polls to strategies to not allow the the winner to take office. All of that is, is, has me very concerned. And I think it's all interconnected. Uh, you know, I think the fact that the Supreme Court is currently c- c- comprises justices who reflect a minoritarian will, uh, and were appointed by presidents who didn't win the popular vote and were, uh, Merrick Garland was prevented from getting on the court and these justices were pushed through. I think all of this is problematic. And I just think, you know, the only way out is to let our voices be heard, to stand up, to organize, to to investigate this, to call it out, to say we don't want it. I, I'm not. You know, it's a challenge. I don't. I don't have any immediate solution, and I do think it's a concern. But I also, the the optimistic thing I would say is that. People have faced great odds throughout American history in relation to their rights in relation to voting, and we're in a situation like that now. Um, and we have prevailed in the past, and I believe we can prevail in the future. But if you know, I'm not going to argue that the that the odds are easy or that the challenges are immediately surmountable. I think it's going to take a lot of work.
1: Have any of the scholars come out and just labeled this as all of the, this the? Perfect storm of situations you just talked about as a constitutional crisis.
0: Um, yeah, I do. Well, <laughs> January sixth uh, was certainly there. Yeah, I, I for sure. I and I think there's been a lot of talk, just more specifically, about court reform in the wake of what's been happening at the court in the last year or two and the failure to appoint J- Justice Merrick Garland and and the way the current members, some of these members of the court got there and there's been talk of um, either uh, expanding the number of justices or stripping jurisdiction over certain cases. There was a Supreme Court commission that the president convened. Um, They stopped short of recommending that we take all these actions, but I think it's still on the table and people are still interested.
1: One last question before we wrap up. What power does President Biden have in issuing executive orders to affect what the Supreme Court may be deciding and what the Senate uh, failed to decide to protect abortion rights? Is there anything that he has power to do?
0: He doesn't have much power over the court, but he has power over certain areas like, for instance, the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice and... There are lots of federal regulations that can be interpreted in ways that protect reproductive rights. There, I, there is a argument right now. I know that the FDA, it removed the restriction that you go to a place, a clinic in person to receive a medical abortion during the pandemic. It made that permanent. There are strong restrictions, stronger than on most drugs. On medication abortion that are not scientifically founded or evidence-based. And so there is is room within the executive branch and the administrative agencies, but there's also room for federal law (laughs) to be made. Um, And so there's there's both executive and legislative moves that can happen at the federal level to expand reproductive rights, but uh, there are some challenges to those too.
1: What an interesting discussion. Well, Carrie, we'd like to take this opportunity to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information.
0: Well, I just would say it's an interesting time. Uh, it's an interesting time at the court. I think it's an it's a time in which the chief justice of the court has lost some power and appears not to be fully in control of the court. So that's an interesting situation that seems to be developing. I'm very interested to see whether the draft opinion is the final opinion, in what ways, if any, it will change, Uh, whether that language that calls out the interracial marriage and same-sex marriage and same-sex intimacy decisions will stay, um, whether the court's we didn't talk about it so much but the court very tersely dismisses any kind of equality argument it doesn't really talk about women at all in this opinion whether that remains part of the opinion so it'll be interesting to do a kind of compare and contrast when the when the final decision comes down but i think we're going to be heading into a fall of a lot of political activism It'll be interesting to see what happens when the Supreme Court issues a decision that a strong majority of Americans don't support and what kind of democratic response will be possible.
1: As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our guest, Carrie Franklin from UCLA School of Law. It's been a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thank you. It's been great to be here.
1: This is not the first leak from the United States Supreme Court back in the late 1700s and 1800s. It was somewhat of a regular practice, but it's been a long time since we've had a leak from the Supreme Court, and this caught everyone by surprise. There have been some subsequent leaks, as uh, Kerry Franklin identified, and some concern about the loss of the right of privacy, which is not necessarily anywhere in the Constitution, but has been inferred and rights then derive from that we stand on a fork in the road american democracy has taken a big hit in the last 6 years from the political mainstream from republicans and democrats and the fights that have ensued and the divisions that the country has gone through and it looks like we're going to take a another fork in the road about the religious right against the left, saying that abortion is necessary and the other side saying it's not. If this opinion changes into a final opinion, I think as Kerry indicated, there will be significant litigation that comes from it. There will be women that get put in jail as a consequence of it. It's going to be a mess. Well, if you have the opportunity, you've learned some things from today's podcast. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes.